0: Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. There is an exhortation there uh, for us to learn from God, perseverance. I was uh, watching the Olympics this week and I was uh, greatly impressed uh, a few days ago in which uh, we ended our cross-country drought uh, with a gold medal. Uh, Keegan Randall and Jesse Diggins won the women's team sprint freestyle race, out sprinting my wife's ancestry, uh, <clears throat> Sweden and Norway, to become the the first Americans to win an Olympic gold medal in cross cross country skiing. Uh, it, it certainly was an amazing feat of endurance and and perseverance and we admire what we see in Olympic athletes. But the concept comes from God and the exhortation comes from God regarding our spiritual walk and our relationship with the Lord and the difficulties that we face. Uh, Many times uh, we become disillusioned by our difficulties and feel as if we ought to just give up, uh, coast, uh, feel sorry for ourselves. And this is not uh, what he exhorts us to do. And in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer to the Hebrews is continuing to explain to his readers uh, that they need to break out of their depression, uh, stop clinging to uh, the ceremonies and the rituals of the Jewish religion from which they were saved into faith in Jesus Christ and not find so much appeal in the ceremonies because their sins were only covered through those Old Testament sacrifices. They were not taken out of the way. But now that the God-man has come, now that God's Son, our Savior Jesus Christ has atoned for sins, our sins have been taken away completely and wholly and forever. And he asks us to go on with him in the excitement of worshiping the person of Jesus Christ as he gives us access right into the very throne room of God in our prayers. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, this is not what you want to hear about the faith that you were reared in and the faith that you have held so dear, uh, the faith that you enjoyed. You've come to hear of the news of Jesus Christ being God's Son and a once for all sacrifice that has to- atoned for sin forever. But there is something about us as human beings in which we like ritual and we like ceremony. Uh, We were living in Dubuque for 23 years. It's a very uh, Catholic town. And as times were changing, a number of the Catholic churches uh, were switching uh, to have a liturgy in English. And there was rebellion in our town because a number of them missed the Latin not that they spoke Latin, nor even know what was being said in Latin, but it just didn't seem to them to have the same punch when it was expressed in English. They wanted the Latin even though they couldn't speak it. What is it about about human beings that crave ritual, that want ceremony, that want incest burning, that want, want candles, uh, that, that want something that looks like a sacrifice taking place. The interesting thing that the writer of the Hebrews brings out is, did you notice that even in the keeping of the rituals as according to the Old Testament sacrificial system, there was a reminder built in year by year that this is just a temporary covering. This doesn't actually take Away your sins. He says, for example, did you notice you had to keep repeating it? Did you notice they daily offered sacrifices? Did you notice year by year there was that day of atonement, the only time in the year in which only the high priest himself would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat? Did you ever think about that? And interesting about him, you can't go in you're not a priest. You can't even go into the outer part. You can only go to the outer courts. You're not even close to the mercy seat of God. But that high priest, when he goes in, he first has to offer a blood sacrifice for himself before he can offer it on behalf of the nation. Does not the ceremony itself teach you something about the longing To have sin finally taken away? Notice he says in verse 1, didn't you get it? It was just a shadow? It was just a picture? It was just typifying what would eventually come true in the person of God's son himself? At the end of verse 1 he says, did you notice it didn't make you perfect? It didn't allow you to come directly to God into his presence and speak to him? He said another thing, verse 2, you still had a consciousness of your sins. Universally, for every human being, God has given us a conscience that speaks to us and condemns us and tells us, you hypocrite, why are you doing this? This is wrong. You fail, God and we hate our consciences speaking to us, but the conscience speaks telling us our sins aren't removed. We need a once-for-all payment that will take away sins forever, cleanse our consciences, and allow us to have free and full access to God Himself. When we remember the Lord Jesus' sacrifice of the breaking of bread, which we did earlier this morning, Uh, we are not rehearsing our sins in that meeting. We are focused on Christ's sacrifice, remembering his once-for-all payment. And when he says in verse 4, do you really think God is all that pleased with the blood of of dumb, amoral, unwilling creatures such as bulls and goats. Doesn't something speak to you to say, this is an inadequate sacrifice to take away my sins? There is just a temporary covering for my sin while I'm awaiting the day in which my sins will eventually be taken away forever and ever. When I go to a store, uh, sometimes depending on the store I'm going to, I don't want to give them cash, I want to pay by plastic. And so I pull out a little card and I make a promise to them and I say, I'll take the merchandise now and you can look at this, and this is a promise that later on you'll be paid in full. Isn't it interesting that we work with credit day by day, in which we say, I'll pay later. You can trust me in this. And we have not come to realize that in the Old Testament, those Old Testament believers were saved on credit, awaiting the day in which the actual payment would be made, which could only be made by the god man God come in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who then fully makes payment to take away our sins forever. The writer to the Hebrews, quoting from Psalm 40, David's psalm regarding the trouble he'd gotten himself into in which his son was uh, trying to replace him on the throne and David was running for his life. We now understand that David's story was a picture, a type, of Jesus Christ himself. I read verse 5 of Hebrews 10, therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God." Now the Old Testament saints had access to these portions of Scripture. And though there were many virtues of the Old Testament sacrificial system, it taught us the seriousness of sin, it taught us the righteousness of God. We came to understand that God's holiness demanded a payment for sin. We understood the necessity of an atonement. But all of that system was a type of Christ looking forward to the ultimate payment, because anyone should have seen in the fact that our consciences aren't clear and that we don't have access directly into God's presence, that we long for. Direct access to God himself. Why are we kept in the outer court? Why only priests get to go in? Why only one priest one day a year gets to go into the Holy of Holies? Where am I in this? How can't I be close to God? And yet Jesus himself has given us exactly what we need. He says, you don't want more sacrifices. You want me. You want all of me. You want my heart. God wants one who will do his will. And Jesus Christ came as the God-man and did exactly what God asked of him. He didn't sin at all. As a true human being, he was one of us and could relate to us completely. And consequently, he becomes for us the great high priest, the one we need, the one that we can relate to who has truly qualified himself through his perfect obedience to God to be that perfect sacrifice for us. If he'd not been human like us, he could not die. And death is the penalty for our sins. Had he not been God the value of his death would not have been infinite. And it would not have been possible to save you and me and anyone else in the world who would believe. Consequently, we long for the full and complete payment for our sins in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we can't seek to return back to any kind of performance-based system where we would take credit for what we do in order to try to motivate God to be pleased by our actions. We instead cast ourselves completely, wholly, on the work of Jesus Christ in our place, paying our penalty for us so that we can have access to God. Verse 8 says, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I've come to do your will. Speaking of Jesus, he says he takes away the first order to establish the second. He replaces and fulfills the Old Testament and establishes the New Testament other than those of us that know the Bible, it has two parts an Old Testament and the New Testament. The only times we ever hear of the word testament is last will and testament, in which we make a contract that says, when I die, my assets will go to the following people. Usually we give them to our children or our grandchildren or the like. Sometimes we give away to charity and the like. That testament is a contract that comes to effect when someone dies. Perhaps better terms than Old Testament, New Testament, our Bibles, we could speak of the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law system, and the New Covenant, which Jesus establishes in His blood. In the Old Testament, it required of us complete obedience and caused us to fail. It gave us no power to obey. In the New Covenant, Jesus Christ takes our sins away from us forever gives us direct access through His accomplishment right into the throne room of God and empowers us through the gift of His Spirit, working with a new nature that He's implanted in us, a new heart. He said we had a heart of stone, we need a heart of flesh, a heart that's soft towards God. His Holy Spirit communing with our new human spirit, enlivened to have fellowship with God, to walk with God, to please Him in all respects, to have our sins taken away and our consciences finally clean. Someone asked me recently, how does a person know, I think it was in in my theology class Tuesday night, someone said, how would we know that the moment we express our faith in Christ, it actually worked? And I said, did you feel that your sins were forgiven? Did you sense the load, the burden of sin that you've been carried, taken away? Did you sense now you had fellowship with God? Could you talk to God directly and sense that he was hearing you? Because it says right here, verse 2 says we had a consciousness of sins. Now he says he has taken that all away. And we feel free and open to speak our minds to God. Imagine that. To tell God what's really on our heart and allow Him to minister to us as the Father He has always been for us. Verse 10 says, By this will. We have been sanctified. That means set apart. He's speaking of our positional sanctification of having relationship with God. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once. It's not repeated year by year. It happened once. And that's all that was needed. Once for all. For any who would believe in him. We have been set apart we have been consecrated to worship and serve God. Where he's heading with all this is where I began. Why is it then that we grow cold? Why is it then that our fervor begins to wane? Why is it then that we become distracted by worldly things? If this is what He has done for us, where is our sense of perseverance? and are clinging to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. He rehearses again his point in verse 11 when he says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which by now you must realize can never actually take away sins. It's a funny thing, there are no chairs where those priests work. No chairs, why? Because they can't rest. They have to work the whole time. To take away sins is the picture of sins enveloping us, as if they're wrapping around us almost like a mummy, and yet they are stripped away once and for all by the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, but he having offered one sacrifice for the sins for all time, And he applies this to the Old Testament saints. They are no longer saved merely by credit. They are now actually saved, their sins having been paid for in full. And we as New Testament believers have our sins taken away completely, paid for once and for all, never to be held against us again. Having made this one sacrifice, he has now sat down. The imagery is he's done, his work is over. He sat down on the throne at the right hand of God, and this cannot be completed. That's a double edged sword in one way. <clears throat> in, in one sense, it's a blessing to us to know that he will never have to die again. His payment was sufficient. On the other hand, it means there's no other means by which any of us could possibly be saved. There is only one way to be saved. Those kids sang beautifully that truth. That was the future of our assembly here. That, those kids are the future of the Lord tarries. And they sang the truth that this was the way in which God saved us, the one way in which He saved us. Verse 13 says, Waiting from that time onward until His enemies may be made a footstool for His feet. You might say, where is Jesus? He is awaiting the time in which He will come again. To take us to be with him forever, and he will establish his kingdom here on this earth, and his enemies will be his foot, foot, footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. What he's then done for us, folks, is that he has positionally sanctified, has positionally placed us with access to God perfecting us, not meaning that we have never had any capability of disappointing him and sinning and needing a family forgiveness found in 1 John 1, 9, but he's saying he has given us the end and the goal of freedom of access, freedom of speech in the presence of God himself because our sins have been forgiven. We beat ourselves up regularly because of the disappointment that we are to ourselves. And we do not live enough in the truth of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ, that once and for all, He has paid for our sins and it will be never held against us again. And he says the Holy Spirit is testifying. He saw Jesus' sacrifice. He's a witness to the covenant. He can bear witness to the gospel. In verse 15, he says, the Holy Spirit testifies to us, quoting from Jeremiah 31, one of the passages that speaks of the new covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, I will write them. Meaning that this new nature that He's placed within us, this new heart that He's given us, actually loves God and wants to please Him. This is a New Testament blessing that was not given in the Old Testament. This is part of the New Covenant, a covenant that belongs to Israel, which Israel will receive in the future when Christ sets up His kingdom. We get a foretaste of it. They get it full force in the New Covenant blessings, in the New millennial reign of Christ. And our heart loves the Lord and wants to please him. Verse 17, and their sins and their lawless needs, I will remember no more. They are truly forgiven. And he says in verse 18 in application, then where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. We've been released from debt. Our debt has been paid. We don't Oh, anything except the next paragraph, the whole point of why we're in this passage, is that he wants us to access him in heaven and give ourselves wholly to him with this new heart that he's given us, loving him completely from the whole part of our being. But the author here has readers who wonder whether Christianity is worth it. They're being persecuted. They probably live in Jewish communities in which the Jews are making it hard on them that they've converted to Christianity. And they wonder like, wouldn't it be easier just to turn back into our old way of life? And the answer is no. What life was that? How helpful was that? Don't you want to be right in the throne room with God Himself? Verse 19. Therefore, brethren, he's speaking to all of us as believers, since we have confidence, that word more literally means freedom of speech, it means freedom of access, it means I'm right there in the throne room of God speaking to him directly. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, we're not speaking of just the symbol of that tent tabernacle where only the high priest could go, we go right into the real tabernacle, God's presence itself in heaven on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice by a new and living way. It's both new in time and in quality. It never grows old. It's always effective, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. That original veil in either the tabernacle or the temple was both A door and a barrier. In one sense, it allowed the high priest to go through. In the other sense, it was a veil saying, but you can't go. You're not allowed. You're blocked by this veil. Jesus Christ, in his consecration, opened that way up and made it available to us, bringing us right into God's presence himself so that we can be with God fellowshipping with him, loving him, and talking to him directly. When I was young and in love with Carol, uh, not yet married, uh, one of my greatest frustrations is she went all the way back to Bolivia one summer, and they didn't have a telephone. Uh, there was no way to talk to her all summer long. I This is back during the cassette era. I, I would audio tape my voice on a cassette I mailed one or two to her during the summer. I wrote her almost every day. We went to Yosemite that year, and I had climbed Half Dome, and I knew that she had written me a letter, general delivery, to the main post office on the valley floor, and I asked my parents, can I run ahead, because I want to get that letter today, and they said, go ahead." And from the top of Halfdome all the way to the post office, I never stopped running. I ran the entire distance to get that letter from her. That, my friends, is the love of access to the heart of just a girlfriend. But how much more so would I want? Access to the heart of God, standing in his presence, opening my heart before him, bearing my whole being before him, saying, I have God himself, my creator, the creator of everything, listening to me because he loves me. This victory has been won by Jesus Christ. Why would I not exercise this access? He has become our great high priest, he says in verse 21. This is due to his dignity as the Son of God, his exalted position, his intercessory work, the sacrifice that he's made. And so he says in exhortation as a response to it, let us. He doesn't address it to us as individuals. He speaks to us corporately because he wants us to worship as a body of believers corporately. The Christian life was not designed for us to function solely as individuals. It was designed for us to do together. We're to study the word of God together. We're to do theology together. We are to worship together. He wants us to gather together and together draw near. Meaning, through the access of prayer, come right up to me and talk to me. With a sincere heart, sincere means true, with a clean heart, with a truthful heart, not with hypocrisy, but with an open, true heart, meaning we're putting our heart into it when we speak to God directly. In full assurance of faith, meaning with great confidence, trusting that this access is actually there and that God actually wants to hear us having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The priests used to do this. Uh, They regularly sprinkled themselves with blood for the picture of propitiation, the payment for sin. They bathed themselves with water, consecrating themselves for service. And we, through the work of Jesus Christ, understanding what it took for us to be able to access God's throne room, We come before him and we pour out our hearts to the one who created us. It is so beautiful. It's a wonder why anyone would ever turn back. How could anyone close his heart down and say, I'm distracted by the things of the world. I'd rather be interested in the things of the world than my creator God, my savior, the one who made it possible for me to have access to him. And so he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. This confession is the actual body of truth of what we know and believe. A synopsis is in the back of our bulletins. But we cling to the truth saying, I belong here. This is my right to be in the throne room of God talking to him directly because this access has been won by my Savior Jesus Christ who's not ashamed to call me his brother, who's not selfish in holding his inheritance to himself but is willing to share his inheritance with me and says, I'll be ruling and reigning over this earth. You may join me in honor serving along with me in administrating my kingdom. It's amazing what he offers us. We, therefore, together as a group, holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who's promised is faithful, he has responsibly achieved this for us. He then says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Why do we do theology together? Why do we do meetings together? Why do we worship together? Why do we drive distances to get near each other? Because he's designed us to function as a family, as a body of Christ as Christ's body, as his instruments to accomplish his work. And as we are worshiping, as we are pouring out our hearts before him, as we are talking to him in prayer, we are also a mutual encouragement to each other, exhorting each other, stimulating each other to show the necessary love to each other that builds us up and bonds us together strongly. The good deeds that we do are not attempts to motivate God to save us. He's already done that. The good deeds that we do are done out of gratitude in serving each other. Some of the individuals to whom he is writing have been so persecuted that they have had their possessions stolen from them, that they have been lied about and abused verbally, and that they have been harmed physically, beaten. But they continue to serve, even visiting their fellow believers in prison, feeding them, making it public, their allegiance with those who've already been in prison. And why would they do that? Because of the love in their heart knowing that Jesus would do this for them and they wanting to follow Jesus and doing it for others. Without fear, they stand boldly for the truth of Jesus Christ against their culture, against their times, in which they strongly minister to each other to strengthen each other so that they will go on together in a manner that pleases the Lord. And when David was rehearsing his difficulty and asking God to rescue him, he says, I know you don't want any more sacrifice. You want obedience. And the obedience that we do is not out of some sense of obligation, not a sense of I do this to motivate you to save me. No, he's already saved me. My obedience is an expression of my gratitude of wanting to please him because he has been so generous and kind and loving To save me, I want to give back to him the love that he has shown me. And the last verse of the exhortation is verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. In the busyness of life, and the difficulties that we face, sometimes we think it's really not necessary for me to be together with other Christians, I can do this on my own, and we're mistaken in that. We think I'm strong, I'm okay, I don't have to be with other believers, in fact, there are some other believers that irritate me and so I'd really rather not be with them. But the scripture continuously exhorts us to function as a body and not as an individual. And we need to be together in order to do this. And so he says we have to gather together, as we're remembering his imminent return to be with us, take us to be with him, that we can't be leaving behind the church and doing this on our own. We have to gather together. When he says that some of you are not gathering together, he does that with great sorrow, thinking, are these people walking away from access to God? Are these people who are saying, I've seen the work of the Holy Spirit in this church, and yet I don't want that. I'll just walk away. He says we have to encourage one another. That takes time and effort. It takes energy, it takes humility and sacrifice to say, who around me could use my help? And what help could I give to them? Uh, How could I be an encouragement to them? Sometimes it's a simple physical thing. Uh, An elderly lady in our assembly asked me last week uh, if I could move a mattress from one room to the other big enough I needed to bring my son, but the two of us moved it for a very simple thing. And then she was worried about her son, who wasn't attending church, and she worried about his spiritual condition. She says, can you meet with my son? Can you encourage him spiritually? So sometimes it's mundane things like moving a mattress. Sometimes it's quality spiritual time, talking about the things of the Lord and encouraging a brother in Christ, though he has been through much heartache to continue his faith in the Lord and to continue to go on with the Lord. If we started looking around us, there are people asking us for things. And rather than being too busy for them or uncaring for them, we need to be available to them and we need to minister to their needs, whether they're physical or spiritual. And then there are people who will never speak up, who will never ask us, who don't make themselves easy to be found, but we need to find them We need to encourage them. Some of them can't make it to the meetings on Sundays. And and we would say that we will come to you and we will encourage you and we will help you and we will be there for you because this is how we exemplify the work of Jesus Christ. We're not forsaking our assembly together, but we're encouraging one another. And the time is short, he says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." There's not a friend of mine that I strike up conversations with who doesn't say these times are looking worse and worse and they're scary and I wonder how much longer this can last and what does this mean for us. Every single friend I talk to talks the same talk, saying, have you seen it this bad? Have you seen what's going on in our our country? This is horrible. If we think the time of the Lord's return is soon, We have to work hard to help people follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, especially those who have begun to lag behind and are not interested in spiritual things. Earlier in the book, the writer had spoken about these people as, quote-unquote, dull of hearing. It's an interesting expression in which... He speaks of them as almost unwilling uh, to listen. Uh, he, he speaks of them as slow. Uh, he says, you've been saved long enough to be teachers, and yet I'm still feeding you milk. And I wish I could explain Christ's priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, but that's meaty stuff, that's hard to chew and digest. And I'm not sure you would even understand what I'm saying, but I long for you to mature and to grow up and to be functioning in the body and to hunger to learn more about the Lord. And these people we need to find. We need to pull out of the busyness of their life and bring them along with us and say, you should be with us studying the word of God, not just drinking milk, Our duties are to worship, verse 22, to persevere, verse 23, and to encourage each other, verses 24 and 25. Will you pray with me to that end? Father, we come before you and say how grateful we are that the salvation that we have is not merely on credit, but it's been paid for once for all by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Thank you for sending him. Thank you that he was willing to become the God-man, though it meant humbling himself, and that he was willing to take our penalty upon himself and pay the price of our sins, though it took everything he had. Thank you that he has now been exalted to your right hand. We long for him to return and to take us to be with him forever. But while we're waiting for that, we praise you. That you welcome us into your throne room in prayer. Through the access of your son that has been achieved for us, he is our representative right there beside you. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who helps us pray, We come boldly into your throne room and thank you for the gift of salvation. And Father, as we have heard our brother's exhortation through the book of Hebrews, we do want to take advantage of the opportunity to worship you. And we do seek, through the power of your spirit, to persevere and be found faithful. And we do realize a responsibility to encourage one another. And we ask that we would be faithful in this. We pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.